Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. This is one of those episodes that is a long time in the making uh, and that tries to address dozens of questions I've received over the past year or so. How do we parent our kids after deconstruction? What if only one half of a couple is going through that? Can people of different faiths have healthy marriages? How do I relate to my family who haven't had the same faith changes that I've had and who think I'm now going to hell? This is a nice, long, meaty episode where we get into as many of those questions as possible with Dr. Doug Shirley. And this is the kind of episode that actually might make you think more seriously about becoming a therapist. It's pretty inspiring. I know it certainly has made me more excited about having started down that career path myself, and I wish that he was a professor in my own program. Now, Doug is going to mention a whole slew of thinkers, writers, and theories, uh, almost at a clip of one per minute or two. But he will always explain them, so don't worry about that. You don't have to know who he's talking about. Um, but at the end of the interview, I asked him for just a few that he thinks are the most helpful. So you don't necessarily need to be writing all that stuff down as you listen. However, this is the kind of episode you might listen to twice because there is just so much in there and Doug moves really fast. And here's my conversation with him. Yeah. 
So this is the episode that many of you have been waiting for, and I have been waiting to find the right person to interview for it. And I think I found him. His name is Dr. Doug Shirley. Doug, thank you for being here. You're welcome. Basically, here's how this conversation came about. I get a lot of questions on the Facebook group usually, but sometimes in person or emails. I've done this faith change. I've I've deconstructed. I've reconstructed. I've changed my mind or my wife has or my husband has or my parents haven't yet. And it's all about like personal relationships. So I've I've had some change. How do I still love these people in my life? How do I talk to people about it? What happens when a marriage no longer feels equally yoked, to use the kind of language mm-hmm. that would have been mm-hmm. given to those of us who grew up evangelical? Yep. What about kids? What do we teach our kids? How do we stay out of uh, these bad patterns that we were taught? And I don't know how to answer those questions. And most of the people I interview don't know how to answer those questions because they are theologians or they're whatnot. But we found Doug. And Doug <laughs> is a... Uh, therapist, mm-hmm. do a lot of marriage, family, and relational stuff, mm-hmm. and you have an MDiv, mm-hmm. and you work in Seattle, which is like a often post-religious or sort of people who are now spiritual but not religious have left mm-hmm. the church, kind of mm-hmm. a city to be in, and you teach at a seminary mm-hmm. that has a robust faith commitment but is theologically fairly liberal. Yep. So you are just the guy. All over the place. <laughs> no, no. But all of those things are perfect for this conversation. Oh, so let's start by getting our bearings, just your own faith journey, yeah. and then what led you into therapy. Yeah, great. Well, I'm from the Philadelphia area, and in fact, by the time I was 16... I was living a half a block from Westminster Seminary and Jay Adams. So that's a bit of perspective. And that's a, a conservative, reformed... Uh, PCA. Yeah, PCA, mm, Presbyterian right. Church of America, which is the, the denomination of the church my wife and I left uh, okay. last year. Yeah. Okay. And and a denomination of the church that I've since left, too. And I'll come to call myself a recover, recovering Presbyterian that way. Um <laughs> But yeah, my, my faith journey starts with, but gosh, I don't, I can remember the bed. Uh, I don't know how old I was, probably six or seven and asking Jesus into my heart any number of times to make sure I got it right, which is pretty typical for me. I'm an eight on the Enneagram, so I do things fairly intensely and intently. Um, but I, I uh, went to a little Christian school, K to 13, uh, went to a PCA church for most of that time, I in fact changed PCA churches a couple of times, but was in the PCA until I moved out here to Seattle to do Marcel Graduate School at the time, as you said, the seminary here in Seattle. Now known as Seattle School. Seattle School of Theology and Psychology. Not to be confused with Mars Hill Church, which was also in Seattle. And especially if you're not from here, you would imagine those connected, never connected. Which is some of why the name was changed. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I would imagine the main reason. But That's yeah, well, on. You said it, not me. <laughs> yeah. So... I did an undergrad in psych, would not have thought I would have been caught dead in seminary because in some ways my image was of the Westminster type seminary. My dad uh, was an elder in the PCA church growing up. Uh, My mom was on the board of our little Christian high school. But in, in my dad's connections and in his professional work, he ran into some of the folks that were teaching at Morris Hill Graduate School at the time, uh, Dan Allender and Don Hudson. And so I went to a conference that they put on in Washington, D.C. called Out of the Christian Ghetto. 
And about five minutes into that talk, my dad had taken me down there because he thought I might fit in well at Mars Hill. And about five minutes into that, I leaned over to him and I said, okay, I'll go. I had been a practicing counselor. So I got my master's in counseling from Temple University in 1999, practiced a whole bunch, in fact, too much from then until the time that I came out here to Seattle in 2002. Faith journey here was really interesting. Uh, It was hard to find a church home in Seattle. I was single for a while looking and then became married and looked for a while. I don't know how many years it is that my wife and I have been attending Bethany Community Church in Green Lake, but that is our church home. And we really began to invest in Bethany as we began to bring kids in the world because we wanted our kids to have have a church home. So that's a snapshot at least. Yeah. I feel like I want to say a little bit of how I found you or how I know of you. So a friend recommended you for this conversation, but I already knew who you were because in the Seattle area where we both live, I've had, I think at least five or six people I know of that have seen you as a therapist. And the hardest thing about going to therapy, I think for a lot of people is finding someone that they can reasonably trust to do good work. And so I've actually always wanted to meet you because of that. Now we're meeting for the first time Mm -hmm. to have this conversation, but that's the kind of thing. It's like, I send so many people to my therapist Mm -hmm. because I'm like, well, I know this guy's good and I don't know about everybody else. And so to me, that gives me even more confidence in whatever you're going to say. Mm. Obviously a listener would only have third, third degree confidence or secondary confidence through me. I'm wondering though, with your clientele, mm-hmm. um, being in Seattle, one of the most unchurched cities in America, I think actually mm-hmm. the, the most, if, mm-hmm. if those numbers are still the same, which means smallest percentage of the population is in church on a Sunday morning, uh-huh, uh-huh, right? Uh-huh. Like what is the makeup faith-wise of the people who see you? Yeah. Yeah. So you know, if you're to look at my CV on paper, it would say I have a master's in counseling, a master's in divinity, and then a doctorate in pastoral community counseling. You and I were talking just a minute ago, and I said a lot of times because of that degree structure, I'm able to get around people's typical defenses. And so oftentimes church folk are a bit skeptical of psychology. Folk uh, have been raised to be skeptical. And so the MDiv really goes far that way. Folks come to me largely because they know that I'm cross-trained. And so the number I gave you was probably four out of five of the folks that come to me are interested in some medley or some integration, some shared conversation between spirituality and mental health. So they either want God to be an active part of the conversation, or they at least want to acknowledge the God that's lurking in the shadows. So just a note on the questions I'm asking you today. I wrote almost none of these. Uh I I think... I might have written three of them, of of all of them. These are almost entirely from listeners to the show, patrons of the show, through the Facebook community. And I'm happy that it's that way because Mm -hmm. this is really an episode that comes from them, from sort of repeated requests for something like this. And so it's going to be a little jumpy. I I tried to arrange them in a sort of logical order, but we're just going to kind of roll through them. Great. Here's the first one. How common is it? for Christians who seek relationship therapy to actually be at different places theologically or how they feel about church, you know, like, like how common is that with the people that you end up seeing? Yeah. Maybe to answer that question and to sort of prepare for some of the other questions that will come, I can give you a couple different categories that I'll keep referencing. Nice. Okay. So first, um, you'll typically hear me speak of spirituality and not religion. 
in my dissertation, I looked at the construct of spiritual authority um, and probably the definition of the difference between religion and spirituality that I trust the most is that religion is about behavior. It's what we do. And spirituality is about emotion and cognition. It's what we feel and what we think. And then I borrow a good deal from a Christian spirituality guy named Ronald Rollheiser, who would argue that spirituality is how we tend to the madness of our desire. And desire is the fire that burns in our bones. Okay. So even in starting to think about faith, where that your question of faith takes me to spirituality. Okay. So what are folks doing with the fire that's in them? That's kind of a basic question that I'll ask. And then I could maybe rephrase your question and say, so what if there are fires at different places or what if there are fires in different quantities or different, right? Okay. And, and in that way, I would say, gosh, that's pretty typical. And so again, another thing that I'll probably say a lot here in the West, we've problematized pain. It's where I think our Eastern brothers and sisters really have something to teach us around pain is pain is pain. And so typically people will come into counseling in pain. Their relationship is holding a great deal of pain. And again, how they steward that pain or the fire of their desire is really all about how they're functioning in their relationship. Is there room for the pain? Is there room for the fire? Um, or somehow do they have to keep that stuff out of their relationship for the relationship to function? So typically, if, if one could see me now, you'd be seeing me hold my arms wide open. I'll talk about in couples counseling the importance of growing the container. Many people were given a version of marriage that said, hey, get your stuff together and clean up your sinful whatever it is so that then your marriage can fit into this neat and tidy box and then totally. you'll be happy, right? As opposed to let's grow the container of your relationship super big and super durable and super robust so that it can actually hold a lot of stuff. Okay, so now back to your question. It kind of depends on the faith of the couple. So if folks are pretty conservative and say they're coming from a mindset that God should be their all in all and all of their needs and wants should be found in Jesus and anything else is sin or doubt, well, those folks aren't going to make their way to me, right? Oh, they just won't end up in your office. That's right. Or maybe because they won't go to therapy at all or because they won't they, go to you. Um Probably both. Maybe the, they wouldn't go to, at least in my imagination, they wouldn't go to therapy. They may go to pastoral counseling okay. where they could get a few Bible verses that would supposedly get them back on track. Or biblical counseling, something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. That, that sort of thing. But So those people don't end up in your office very Not often. Not typically. Okay. That maybe every once in a while where a partner is dragged in, right. say, kicking and screaming by the other partner who says, will you try this with me? I have a couple of follow-ups about that. So let's talk about that real quick, because okay. I'm sure that does happen. And I would imagine a lot of people listening would go, I know someone in my life who's either been dragged into therapy or mm -hmm. ought to be dragged into mm -hmm. therapy. What's the prognosis in that Not situation? Good. Not good. Therapy as punishment never works. Hmm. Okay. And what's really interesting, actually, um, is in systems land. So as a couples therapist, it's my job to always think systemically. And this, is, this may sound a bit odd, but in a system, often... What appears weak is strong, and what appears strong is weak. 
So, for instance, you may have someone who seems to have a very clear theology, a very strong doctrine that they're not afraid to share with anyone and everyone. I have someone in mind. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But behind that veil, they're terrified. Yeah. There seems to be an inverse relationship there. Right. Almost always. Right. And so, for instance, it's maybe not uncommon for the person who's calling, say the partner who's calling, say they're the non-conservative partner, right? That person who's calling to either be called the weak one or the strong one, but probably they're called the weak one, right? Because they're married to the proverbially strong partner. But in real time, the way their relationship plays out, it's the inverse. And so when we start to get a bit close to those vulnerabilities, the susceptibilities of the relationship to that sort of misnomer of story, then typically the couple will exit stage left. Another follow-up, you, you mentioned in describing that conservative person, like Jesus should be their all in all or God yep. should be their all in all. Yep. You, I, I imagine you use your meaning kind of air quotes around that. Yes. Because in a sense, it would be great for Jesus to be our all in all yep. if we could do that in a healthy way. Indeed. But it's more like that's the language they will use Literally. to get out of Literally. therapy. Yeah. Literally. But, but, and it's, and again, it's language that people will use. They'll bring in that, say, good evangelical, post evangelical guilt of, I know I'm supposed to have all my needs met in Jesus, but, but when that doesn't happen, and what do I do? And that's what brings me here. And so they almost, again, feel a little bit guilty, like they're drinking from a well that they shouldn't by coming to therapy, because if only they had stronger faith, then this wouldn't be a thing. Do you have any examples of people you've seen who came in with that kind of guilt, but were there in earnest and eventually found their way back to having God be there all in all in a oh, new love way? It. Love it. Yeah, for sure. In fact, I hope that's a majority of the people that I see. I also studied shame and guilt in my dissertation. Guilt in moderation is actually motivational. Too much of it really burdens us. But one of the things that guilt does is it lays over top of other experiences. And so often the work in counseling is to help a person to process their guilt and their shame, to actually get into the underbelly of what's below it. And what often you'll find below it, there is a pretty robust faith. That fire that we were talking about, the the fire in their bones is actually quite lively, but it's been boxed in in ways. And then my last follow-up to to this first question, (laughs) when you say spirituality, you know, a lot of people, especially in the theological church world, so even some people I will interview will be like, you know, there's religious and then there's spiritual but not religious. That's kind of the demographic term. And that is, for a lot of us, I I think even myself included, I would consider that to be a downgrade, Mm. all things being equal, assuming they haven't been hurt in church I would prefer people are spiritual and religious. Mm. Like I think there's value in community. Mm -hmm. There's value in taking uh, the Eucharist as Mm -hmm. regularly Mm -hmm. as you can. I mean, stuff Mm -hmm. like that, which Mm -hmm. is religious behavior, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but you're not meaning it that way. So it's for you. Spiritual is not a downgrade from some other terminology. I think we could just spend a little more time on that. I like that. Yeah. In fact, I think it's an upgrade, right? Because it really is. it, It isn't about what we do. It's about what's inside that really helps to promulgate what we do. Now I'll borrow from the psychological literature and say from, from the positive psych side, this is kind of interesting. If we think about religious behavior, when people bind 
themselves to things. And quite frankly, it doesn't matter what the thing is. It could be church attendance on Sunday. It could be Seahawks. It could be Boy Scouts. It could be stamp collecting. It could be whatever. Relationships are stronger when there's sort of a third entity involved, if this makes sense. And the research also tells us that kids are healthier when they're raised in religious communities. It's not a matter of when they're raised in Christian communities as opposed to Jewish or Buddhist or what have you. It's when they're raised in those communities. So no, for me, there is no pejorative use of the word religion, but there is a sense of often religion for folks has trumped spirituality. And so therefore, if we let the fire burn bright, my sense is religious behavior will naturally follow. Yeah, that's interesting. It's more an issue of priority. Yeah. Um, because it, it seems to me that you can't really have super robust spirituality without some kind of religious practice. Well, we're but re- you don't, but you want it to come because of the desire as opposed Love to that. it's for, it's, you know, you're guilted into it or you're, it's fear based or something Love like that. that. Love that. For sure. Love that. Yep. Most people come to counseling in some version of crisis. Yep. And so, I did. Yeah. So, so we're talking about faith. We're talking about belief. We're talking about spirituality. And I think we have to talk about crisis. And so, you know, crisis can be lots of different things. It can be an affair. It can be a porn use, if not addiction out it. It can be financial troubles, gambling, uh, substance abuse, whatever the thing is. Right. And to say to a person who's going through crisis, Hey, this is good news. Um, get you punched. Um, But it's true because in crises, things fall apart. Pima Chodron wrote a great book about that saying that often things need to fall apart. There has to be a crisis such that things can actually be put together in a new way. So I'll give you an example. For instance, a couple where there's been an affair. Well, guess what? That relationship is now dead. Now, it doesn't mean that that relationship can't be rebirthed and grown into a way more healthy relationship than was ever. The other one is done. Yeah. It's been Mm -hmm. ended. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so, again, I'm hoping that we can have really a healthy version of crisis that says when one's going through crisis, if one can hang on in the context of community, that's good news because the Chinese symbol for crisis is danger and opportunity. What, What that's saying to us is that opportunity lurks. I mean, it lines up with basically everything that I believe about the way that people change as well. Mm -hmm. Um, Almost nobody becomes a great person through just enjoyment. Yeah, exactly. It's pain. It's suffering of some sort. Exactly. Um, And then, I mean, David Brooks, his new book, Second Mountain, is all about this. Basically, nobody looks back on a vacation they took to Hawaii and said, man, that's really when I changed. That <laughs> changed my life. Yeah. That right. cha- it doesn't change anyone's <laughs> life. Right. Uh, the, a kid dies or, yes. you know, whatever, a marriage ends, yes. or whatever, that stuff changes us. Yes. A cancer diagnosis, you know, yes. stuff like that. And so that kind of makes sense to me. I mean, that, yes. that would, it's flowing from the same kind of river. Yes. So continuing the conversation about people being in different places. Yep. Now, I'm, I'm imagining that most of these questions would not be thinking in the terms that you're thinking. So when they're asking about faith differences, they're not necessarily meaning a different orientation to the good yeah. or something like right. that, but rather right. more right. of the outward stuff. Right. Or, you know, maybe someone says, well, it's really important to me that my kids are confirmed in the Catholic right. Church. Sure. Something totally. like that. My husband stopped going to church. What do I do? That kind of thing. Yeah. Right. Yep. Okay. So here's a question. If a couple chooses to get married, knowing they have different beliefs and practices, what are some tips for handling that well 
when there are children. Personal example, I'm dating someone who does not go to church and does not want to. From what I've learned of his experience, this makes sense. I do want to find a church community and I want to take future kids with me, but I also don't want them to get stuck in some of the same black and white thinking that caused me so many problems. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot in here. How yeah. do couples navigate that in a way that is healthy for the relationship and for the kids? Can this be done proactively instead of just reactively? Yeah, I love the question. Fantastic question. Obviously, this person's already thinking yeah. in the yeah, right line. Thinking lines. and yeah, experiencing, yeah. right? And so I'll, I'll be playful first and say, hide it under a bushel, no. Um, <laughs> talk early and often. Uh, my experience working with couples, I've done a good bit of work of some version of whether we call it engagement, uh, premarital work, whatever we call it. And what's what typically happens is differences draw us to people, but then they become threats. Hmm. And so, for instance, you know, it's not uncommon for a person to meet up with a partner who just seems so very different than their upbringing for that to be so compelling and so exciting. And so we ride the wave for a time and the uh uh-ohs start to develop, but we try to shush them because we're having such a great time. But then we start to move towards this idea of commitment and the uh uh-ohs start to get bigger, right? When I was in grad school, Dan, Dan Allender was talking about these various DMZs, uh, dead, um, what do you call that? Uh, dead man zones, right? Demilitarized zones. See, I knew that's the, that's, there it is. (laughs) 49th parallel. 39th parallel? Yeah. Yeah. Um, And and so his proposal would be sex, money, and in-laws were DMZs. Well, I also think this sort of thing is a DMZ too. Hmm. So-and-so hasn't gone to church in five years. I'm going to church each week. He said that he'll come. He still hasn't come. We're getting closer to that. Even things like, are we going to get married in a church? Are we going to get married with my pastor? Right? These become big flipping deals, right? Especially the closer to the big day that you get. And so what I would say, and you're going to, again, hear me say this throughout, the sooner you start to talk about things, the better. And the difficulty of that is sometimes conversations are going to serve as a bit of a buzzkill, right? When you're in that honeymoon phase, and I don't mean necessarily marriage honeymoon, I mean in the early meeting someone honeymoon phase. When you're in the period where the the chemical rushes in your brain are overwhelming <laughs> yeah, that's right. your ability to look at the future <laughs> yeah. or whatever. Yeah, there's a guy yeah. named Stan Tetkin who I, I have a professional crush on and he um, he speaks of us being on drugs when we meet people. Yeah. Um, and so yeah. yes, as um, so even when you're on drugs, take notes and ask friends to take notes. Hey, what do you think about my partner who, you know, this is what they've said to me about their, their religious faith history. How does that sound to you? So start the conversation with each other and also with people that you trust. My sense is that marriages or committed relationships really have a hard time making it if they don't have relational advocates on both sides. And what Mm -hmm. I mean by that is someone sanctioned by the other partner. So for me, for instance, you know, one of my dear friends, Paul would be this guy. I can say anything in the world to my dear friend, Paul, about my wife, about my faith, about whatever. And he's not going to turn it against me. He's not going to turn it against my wife. If anything, because he loves us, he's going to say, got it. Now, how can I help? 
right? And so you need that from the beginning. Tatkin will say, because you're on drugs, your brain is not thinking clearly. And so you, your relationship, even at that point, needs an advocate where you can say, hey, I'm falling head over heels over this person. What do you think? And even if you don't have ears to hear what they're saying, they're an advocate for the relationship in that they keep saying it as long as they need to. Here's a question that I love because it sounds like I might have written it, but I didn't. <laughs> Can a traditional, literal, biblical inerrantist and a liberal, conceptual, biblical errantist find happiness together? Yeah. And as I, as I made notes for this uh, interview, I said, gosh, I don't know. I haven't seen it, but it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. You really haven't seen it. I don't. Uh, That's kind of surprising to me. That may be exaggerative, but it may not be. Okay. I mean, so here, okay. So here's why it's surprising. Me. Yeah. Millions of evangelicals uh-huh. are currently making the move from literal inerrantist you to bet. conceptual errantist. And many of them are married. Yeah. Already married. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, or yeah. so I hope it's not true. I mean, that can't be a death. Well, I, well, maybe good, good clarification. Cause I think maybe I'm hearing that as folks who are very outspoken, sort of on the broad edges of the okay. continuum. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. As opposed to if we put this on a continuum to say, well, this is ev- probably everybody from a seven to a three or something. Totally. You know, move, right. Yeah. Right. But for me, it comes back to this issue of container and we can maybe say that in two ways. One, how big is the container of relationship? But two, how big is the container of God? How big does God get to be, right? And so, so often religious impulses come out of fears. And so you're asking, when you ask that question of me, for me, it makes me think about these people are going to be scared. We're going to have lots of fear in this relationship because we're messing with their categories of what makes the universe, the universe, what makes God, God. Let's, okay, let, let's rephrase this question. Let, let me put a little stank on it so rather <laughs> than stank? yeah i like that <laughs> rather than let me let me spit on my hands before i throw this yeah. curveball yeah um rather than assuming that the traditional literal inerrantist is like a fundamentalist okay let's just say it's somebody maybe they've gone to an acts 29 church yep. or they're kind of like a regular maybe an urban 30s and they're like yeah i think the bible's probably inerrant and okay. like i think i'm supposed to read it fairly yeah, literally yeah, yeah. got it um but they're not you know, they're not backwoods fundy. Yep. And then the other person in the, I'm imagining that would have to be a man because they're going to be complimentarian. It doesn't have to be, but let's just imagine that's the, that's the husband. And then the wife is like, but I've been reading Richard Rohr Mm. and listening to the liturgists. And like, Mm -hmm. I feel like I'm moving that Mm -hmm. direction, but my Mm -hmm. husband still feels like, Hey, if it's the word of God, it's the word of God. Mm-hmm. Let's let's let me yeah. reframe it to be yeah, that like way. That. Got it. Yeah. And let's say they're thirty-five or yeah. something like that. Then that's probably the bread and butter of what I do. Well, that's kind of what I was saying. I was like, yeah. there's no way, there's no yeah. hope for yeah, that, or else the, you'd no, be no, no, no. I'd be out of a job. Bad record. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. I wouldn't be getting those uh, fives on Yelp, but. Um, yeah, no, that's that's bread and butter stuff. And so for me, one of the first places that I'll turn there is Ephesians four fifteen. Speak the truth in love. Uh, I believe that many of us raised, and so, I'll, you know, for me, it was Reformed Church. Many of us raised in the evangelical church. We were taught to privilege truth over love. And so oh, yeah. my sense of a few, what Paul's saying there in Ephesians, truth without love isn't true. And so the dilemma is we got a lot of people who are chasing after truth in pretty unloving ways. 
And so in that relationship where I'll start to meddle a little bit is to ask about love, ask about the giving and receiving uh, of goodness, of pleasure, of trust, these things that make love. Um, Because often folks have been misguided into power struggles about truth as opposed to a love that can hold it all. And so often that's probably one of my first interventions is to, to get us chasing after love a bit more than truth. I want to ask further if that is kind of your bread and butter, because I feel like that's also sort of one of the main arteries of questions here today okay. is, is a, a situation sort of like that. Okay. Like from one to 10, you know, one, one person's at a seven now, yep. another person's at a three. Yep. It's not a complete one to 10 thing. From actual examples of couples you've worked with, what are actually some of the decisions they've made or practices they've done yeah. or things you've encouraged or whatever? Yeah, it's great. It's great. Um, to get each one invested in what's happening for the other is a really important thing. But sometimes the first step is to establish a third way. So John Gottman's methodology, for instance, if, if your listeners know Gottman, he's a UW guy, uh, a world-renowned researcher on relationships. He's the guy that they can get the 90% prediction the if a marriage is going to last yeah, and it's... Yeah. It's the stuff. Actually, Dave Brooks talks about this in in his new book, in the marriage chapter. And it's okay. the amount of about like for every one away move, you do five toward mm-hmm. moves. Yep. Yep. Yeah, and so stuff. he's talking about the emotional bank account. What's really cool about Gottman's science and his approach is it creates a bit of a third language for couples. So again, if we, if part of what's happening is we have some lost in translation stuff happening between the two partners who are on two different journeys, then sometimes to introduce a third voice or a third way, kind of a third leg of the stool, can be a way that they can join such that they can keep talking about the hard stuff. The Gottmans have a lot of products online. Uh, there are texts that they can work their way through. Again, even this idea of establishing a new hobby, a new outlet, a new leisure, bike riding, hiking, running, all very spiritual practices, by the way, right? To invest in something where their linkage is clear. There's a brain scientist, a guy named Dan Siegel, interpersonal neurobiologist, who gives us this idea that integration is the linkage of different parts. And so say that again. Yeah, yeah, integration. And so he's going to be talking neurally, but good golly, we can talk theologically and whatever it's else. A met- it's a right? metaphor, yeah. Okay. Right. Uh, integration is the linkage of differentiated parts. So many couples will come, this is a long-winded response to your question, by the way. It's good. It's interesting. Um, Many people will read that Genesis 2, the two shall become one verse there and say, oh, okay, so I've got to give up certain parts of myself. Partner has to give up certain parts of self. And then they become this sort of fused entity in the middle. Amalgamation or something. As opposed to back to building the container. The bigger I allow the container to be by way of the more I become who I am and the more partner becomes who they are, then that third entity called relationship benefits from that. And so again, anything that helps each partner to grow, not just, and we're not even growing, you know, from a place that they aren't to a place that they are, but really something that allows them to become more of who they already are. So not even necessarily the third way is something religious or spiritual. I mean, well, the good stuff's all spiritual, I guess, in your language, but, (laughs) but just introduce something else that you can do together to 
to remind yourself the ways that you are actually linked together. Cook on a Friday night. Yeah. Binge watch Downton Abbey, right? Whatever the thing mm-hmm. is, right? Yeah. Because the more you find you can link to your partner, the more you'll be able to tolerate, if not benefit from. Yeah, and understand more clearly. The, right? Yeah, value, right. cherish the differences that they bring. If what yeah. we're saying is fear is at the heart of so much interpersonal tension, and I should back up and say, you know, anthropologists and other folks will tell us fear is kind of the granddaddy of all feelings. If you and I didn't have fear, we probably wouldn't live till tomorrow. It has immense survivalist value. And so fear gets a bad rap, maybe especially for men, fear gets a bad rap. But we've got to understand fear has a really functional purpose. But people's behavior turns really sideways really fast when they're afraid if they're not simply allowed to say I'm afraid. And so even to get couples talking about the fear that sits between them as they continue to grow and heal as people, and they're not sure that their relationship can hold the difference, that's part of the good stuff too. Next question. I'm curious about the differential in faith difference or faith change compatibility, like starting from different faiths or different theologies from different starting places, Mm -hmm. I think is what they mean. I would guess that it wrecks fundamentalist context relationships and is fine in more open and inclusive religious context relationships, question mark. But I think this person's also willing to be wrong about that and have that expectation subverted a bit. Yeah, I think what I would say there is I come back to how big the containers are um, for God, for self, for other, this sort of thing. My experience of a lot of fundamentalist beliefs and traditions is that they're a push against something else. Philosophers have told us for quite some time, when we're free from something, that's not nearly as potent as when we're free for something. And so oftentimes it's the partner who's busy trying to be free from something that gets the most stuck. Now, that could be the fundamentalist partner, but that could also be the partner who's considering more liberalist things where, oh my gosh, if you keep pulling me back into that fundamentalist frame, I'm going to die. Right. So it's it's the folks who are who are interested in back to that third way, interested in saying, what can we be free for here? Now, that's scary. It's desire filled. There's that fire in our bones business again. Right. It's scary. But oh, my goodness, is it exciting? What folks who study relationship will tell us is there's a spectrum of need that every person has and every relationship has. And it moves from security to novelty. Okay, so on the security side, we have people need to know somebody's got their back. We're on the same team. You're going to choose me come what may. I'm safe and secure with you. But on the other side, we have novelty. Things are new and different and exciting. And we can adventure and we can try new things. And it's not that the relationship needs to be smack dab in the middle of security and novelty. In fact, where people are in their spiritual journeys, where families are in their developmental journeys, for instance, are there kids at home, this sort of thing, uh, will determine where on that spectrum it's going to oscillate. Yeah, totally, yeah. right? But that sense of if the relationship can open to novelty. And again, novelty can be, hmm, person brings home a Richard Rohr text and he starts talking about the universal Christ. And that sounds interesting, but scary. Yeah, novelty. Right? right. What do we do? And then how do we circle the wagon such to say, come what may, we're going to work this out together. 
that makes me think of another possibility of a third way, and I want to know if this is right. Okay. It makes me think of like interfaith collective action. Mm-hmm. You know how mm-hmm. maybe a bunch of rabbis and imams and pastors will get together and say, hey, we all agree that there's a poverty problem in our mm-hmm. city. What can we do what together? Can we do? Could a couple pick a shared passion, like a shared deep concern and like do something practical about that together. Totally. Totally. Where it's not explicitly theological. So it might be tutoring poor kids or something. Well, and ironically what implicitly how this often plays out between partners is they choose parenting. Right. Exactly. <laughs> right. So they yeah. simply, and that's going to get to, I think, some of the other questions that were asked. They simply say, let's pour ourselves into our kids. That'll be the third way. That'll be the thing that we invest in. Right. Does that, that work? Because I mean, the worry is like, well, having kids doesn't save marriages. And well, I, and uh, does it work? No ish. Uh, again, to have something that, that a relationship invests in. Yes, that works. When it becomes the kids solely, probably not so much. Because again, parents have to be fully themselves first and there's also a lot of pressure on a on, on the kid. a young impressionable you life and then like this little life is in your hands and you if bet. you disagree on what you a good life looks like then you that, bet yeah but, sure. a, but an example i'll give you in my own life is i played soccer from an early age uh, i have two out of three boys actually now three out of three boys that are playing soccer um we are in the throes of soccer season and so if you asked my lamenting wife she would say to you we've we've given our lives over to soccer and so that is absolutely kid related but it's also family related we slept to spokane a couple weekends ago to play in a tournament there and so it's kids centered but it's also community centered yeah well that leads into the next question which is about kids when and if at all is it appropriate to share nuance and doubt with your kids when it comes to matters of faith yeah i came from evangelicalism and deconstructed in my 30s and i am on a path to let my kids follow that same timeline it feels like the right thing to do to start them with certainty and hit them with nuance when they're ready. However, it feels a twinge hypocritical, and I don't know when the best time will be. For now, I'm content they are at a fun church where they can engage and make friends. And I'll just add, this is in Roar's Falling Upward. This is like his main thesis Mm -hmm. of that book, of which I only read half, but I got the main point, which Mm -hmm. is you have to have a wall Mm -hmm. against which later on you can push. Yes, for sure. So I think that that's coming through here. At the same time, we, of course, worry, you know, like I've heard so many stories of people being given horrendous black and white stuff, like either the Bible is true and Jesus loves you or evolution is true, you know, (laughs) just total crap like that. So. What do you think about? What's your take? Yeah, again, some sort of behind the scenes work to get to the question. So you've already heard me working on this category of fear a little bit. In my master's thesis that I did at Mars Hill Graduate School, I looked at the relationship, for me, it was between men and fear. We can expand it out to say between people and fear. For instance, fear is often pitted against love. So my looking at fear was, okay, scripture says in 365 times, do not be afraid. Well, I didn't find in any of those times uh, some version of don't be afraid because fear is sin. Don't be afraid because fear is weakness. What's there is don't be afraid because God, right? So Isaiah 43, do not fear for I am with you, says the Lord. Every single time an angel shows up, it's the first thing they say. So we got it. We have to destigmatize fear. We also have to destigmatize doubt. 
That same developmental psychologist I told you about, Eric Erickson, would say there's a period of time, 18 months to three years, where a kid, that crisis, remember that crisis we were talking about, the crisis is autonomy versus shame and doubt. And check this out. This gets me, this gets me going. If you think about this, the kid in the first year of life is either always on their back or always on their front. And then what happens is they stand up and the whole world changes because now they have a 360 degree view and a question, does somebody have my back? Does this make sense? That's where doubt emerges. And this is like when it, Attachment is really important. Hello, right, right. Yeah. Now, again, now I'm going to bump over theorists and talk about a guy named Stephen Mitchell, who will say secure attachment is an illusion. And here's what he means by that: kids will grow up in homes where there is enough good stuff to go around. They'll grow up believing that their parents are perfect. And then a little bit at a time, they'll see the chink in their parents' armor and realize, oh, dad doesn't have his stuff figured out either. But it sort of comes in these microdoses, right? So it's sort of like an inoculation. Over time, a kid sees the parents' fallibility, but that's as they're capable of seeing it. A guy named Heinz Kohut speaks of this as as long as they're sort of many failures of the parent, actually help the kid to grow in resilience. So the first thing I'm going to say is it's probably actually not the kid's doubt that's the problem. It's the parent's doubt. Well, I think that's what the question is about. <laughs> yeah, okay. The, the question so, I think yeah. is about the parent's doubt. I, yep, yeah. yep. So, so, but why I say that is, first of all, let's make sure not to project onto our kids something that's actually our spiritual journey. Right. Because sure. what will happen, you know, I thought I had my stuff together until I got married. I thought I had my stuff together until I became a dad. And then we live with these people and it's so natural to project our unfinished business onto them. So fears about what's going to taint kids is really us figuring out what to do with the parts of us that feel tainted. Okay. Back to Mm -hmm. what do we do with our fear? What do we do with our doubt? What do we do with our fire? That sort of thing. Okay. So if what we're saying is the kid is already in doubt land by 18 months to three years, then that says to us, we're not doing harm to them by introducing categories of doubt. In fact, how kids' brains work is when they're functioning in a vacuum and when they don't get the information that they need, what happens is they attribute cause to themselves. And so if they're told that there's a good, there's something called the just world hypothesis where say something bad has happened and a kid doesn't have information to help them to know, you know, why the bad thing happened. That kid will say there's a big world and there's big people and I'm small and I'm the newest figure on the scene. So it must be me. That's the problem. So the kid that is given certainty as opposed to exposure to doubt in a way that's digestible for them will probably actually be left to their brain's own limitations and devices. And most likely their sense of what happened or their sense of their own spirituality will actually turn sideways. How much research is there on something like that? Because that sounds intriguing. Uh, Sounds like it's probably right. But I'm like, well, but what if it's wrong? You know, like there's a lot at stake there. The idea that, you know, raising kids to go, well, I don't know. What do you think? 
rather than saying, we believe that uh, Jesus died for our okay. sins or whatever. Well, okay. So, so that isn't necessarily what I'm saying. Okay. Um, maybe I'd want to draw the distinction, say, between apologetic and testimony. It is really important for a parent to tell their own story. Narratives are how brains grow and develop. Right. Okay. Yeah. And so to give a kid, this is interesting. There's a work of a woman named Rachel Yehuda who looked at children of Holocaust survivors. She looked at folks that were in the uh, World Train Centers that went down. Kids of parents who have lived through trauma, one of the main indicators of whether that kid will develop PTSD is the cogency of narrative that their parent gave them. Okay. Be very clear about, hey, here's what mom and I believe, right? Or even here's someone where this is somewhat daddy believes and this is somewhat I believe, right? So give very clear language, but put story to it. Put some skin in the game. Talk about the difference between belief or faith and things we don't know, things we can't see. And so that we're choosing, uh, if you know the name Peter Enns, I imagine you do, Sin of Certainty guy, right? You know how Enns talked about how we've moved belief up into our head. It has no longer become something of our guts, something of our embodied self. It just becomes sort of a dime a dozen thought, right? So let's not throw a bunch of supposedly clear thoughts at kids, but rather let's give them embodied pictures of us living what we believe with an understanding that questioning is an additive to faith, not a subtraction. I guess I just want to highlight, it sounds like you're disagreeing with Rohr here, because when he talks about this, he says, look, I joined the Franciscans pre-Vatican II. He had like a very kind of like, this is the certain structure, the Pope is infallible. And then he's like, I'm so glad I had that, because later on, I was basically had this kind of I don't know, I guess like a womb or something to start Mm. with. And then Mm. I could push back on and go, actually, I think it's bigger than all of that. Mm. And it sounds like you're saying, uh, it's not clear that that, like, just because Rohr said it doesn't mean that he's familiar with the de- developmental literature and all that stuff. You know, <laughs> well, he, he does a decent job. I mean, in his, you know, he borrows a lot on the work of Carl Jung. And so even the two spiritual halves of life, naturally yeah. Jung's work in a right. lot of ways, right? And actually even my language of container builds on that a little bit, right? So the, there's no question, secure attachment wise, a kid needs to have clear pictures to engage with. Here's who we are. Here's what we value. Here's who we see Jesus to be. Here's why we go to church. Here's why we don't do X, Y, and Z. No question about that. Right. But the dilemma is in the world today, you're, and you know, you're, you're sort of giving this bio that speaks. Of, I've got kids I'm raising in Seattle, right? Or in the greater Seattle area. And it's really surprising to my kids when they find out that a kid in their class doesn't believe in God. Right. What to do then, right? So if all I've given them is a very clear picture of Jesus saves, but then their buddy doesn't know the name Jesus, well, now they've got a whole world of who knows what that they have to sort out, right? How do you do? How do you deal with that particular one with your own kids? So we be, we be, <laughs> we look to be 
very clear about uh, who we are and where we come from. Again, that's back to, I think, this business of, of that version of certainty. And then we talk about, you know, God made lots of people. The image of God is in is all around us. Some people have been raised with exposure or access to certain things, you know, others to other things. Um, Esther Meek was on the campus of the Seattle School this past year. I love Esther Meek, epistemologist. Yeah, right? A little manual on knowing. Her argument, and this brings me to tears almost every time I say it, is the image of God is made manifest in the glint of a person's eye. And so to say for us to this is back to that fire in our bones business, right? To be teaching our kids about the glint in their in their classmates' eye and the goodness that's there. To open them to a category where when they then hear the name Jesus, they actually have a goodness to pair that with, as opposed to simply, you know, again, some words on a page. I feel like there's a natural follow-up, which is what about when the parents don't know what all those defining claims are? They don't know what they think about Jesus. They haven't been going to church, but they want their kids to have some sort of faith. I mean, what about when that stuff is uncertain? I mean, do you just find something else that is certain? Like – in this house, we treat everybody well. We, yeah, you know, something like it. that. Great, great. So, yeah. So, when in doubt, one can look to common values, right? So, in other words, to look to if if a person, if a parent, is evolving themselves, or maybe even their experiences that they're devolving because they don't know where they're going, right? So that's happening, and they don't know which end is up, and so they don't know what to teach their kid. Again, first off, that parent will will often choose silence, and you've heard me say a little bit about silence is deadly. I'll do a little aside here and say, I used to teach human sexuality to undergrads. And what the textbooks would tell us back then, because parents don't talk about hard things like sex, invariably things like porn become the sex educator. So again, if we're not talking about the hard thing with parents, something else is going to become the educator. Yeah. So there's a question here that's next that, that follows pretty perfectly from this how do parents handle teaching their kids different values, like respecting each other while disagreeing on what to teach their kids? For instance, LGBTQ lifestyles are sinful versus I'm not LGBTQ. So I don't fully understand the experience, but God created some people this way and they deserve to be loved. So you have, you know, a husband, wife or two partners who disagree on this. Both views are diametrically opposed. Neither of us feel comfortable teaching our children what the other person believes but we have to be true to our personal convictions. How do you have a thriving marriage with lots of those issues coming up? End quote. To respond to that question, I'm going to lean again on Gottman's research a little bit. You know, he's, again, he's that one who can predict whether relationships are going to stay together or not. What he talks about is how when couples get together, their irreconcilable differences exist at that point. And divorce decrees, you know, typically cite irreconcilable differences as the reason for divorce. Yeah, exactly. Right. right. And so what Gottman tells us- always have them. Right. Some of them are right. And so what Gottman tells us is many arguments in the context of relationships are perpetual. 69% of arguments are perpetual. And let's say, for instance, one of those arguments is what to do about this very heart of this question, whether it's, you know, how do we think about faith? How do we think about sexual orientation? How do we think about all this stuff, right? Okay. 
Okay. So if differences exist, or even as we're saying, if couples start to grow apart because one starts to, you know, in their estimation, upgrade their faith a little bit, it's not about the what of the conversation that matters. It's about the how. And so Gottman gives us a very practical piece of guidance to, he calls it a soft startup, where he says, a conversation will end how it starts. So in other words, if we're going to enter into a heated conversation around, okay, does this make sense? We're going to enter into a heated conversation around what we're going to teach our kids. Right. They have they have a kid in their class that just came out as trans and the parents had a celebration of that. Right. And they've been invited to the party. And so they're trying to figure out how in the world they're going to respond. Right. How those very Seattle example. How those parents have that conversation with each other and therefore how they have that conversation with their kids is everything. Yeah. If you start with, look, honey. The country's going to hell in a handbasket. <laughs> right. You know how that's going to end. <laughs> and, yeah. and your father is making stuff up and he's drinking too much, whatever. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So the space between us, how we care for each other and process content, to me, brings us back to that truth without love isn't true. Whatever proverbial side of whatever proverbial argument you fall on by way of conversations about sexuality, sexual orientation, and this sort of thing, how we have those conversations is everything. It's also like it's 2019. If you live in any kind of urban context – you're going to deal with this stuff mm-hmm. uh, and you have children. It's just going to happen. And, mm-hmm. and so to say the answer to that is homogeny mm. within our right. family and marriage. Right. Well, that might work for the two of you. What about when your kid becomes a teenager and they have a gay friend right. and then now they have to leave the family because right. you disagree. You know, right. it's kind of like, this is what, this is one of the unspoken things I got from my parents. My dad is a therapist, has been for 40 years of like, you know, the world is complex and we should expect it to be complex and we should probably not be dogmatic about very many things. Mm-hmm. And that's, mm-hmm. that served me well. And mm-hmm. I, that's one thing I hope to keep going with my own children mm-hmm. eventually. You know, there's a, there's a quip about people like me, professorial people like me, that we typically speak the most when we have the least to say. <laughs> right? It's the and, title of my autobiography. <laughs> there you go. And so a lot of parents will say a lot of stuff. will talk their kid in circles about this sort of thing, as opposed to growing big ears. And back to what we were talking about, clear speech. Here's what we believe, clear speech, whatever that's going to be, right? But big ears around how does that sound and how does that fit with what you hear us saying about whether you are or aren't going to go to that friend's birthday party. I want to throw a wrinkle into the last two questions, you know, the stuff about talking with your kids about differences in faith or giving them a secure wall or not Mm -hmm. to push against. Mm -hmm. And then when these really hairy things come up, Mm -hmm. an additional wrinkle, what if you are divorced or separated and your co-parenting partner and you don't agree? Just just what does that add uh, and and what might be a a wise thing to do if if that's also part of the situation? Yeah. And I think I'm hearing your use of that word wall. You said it before around Roar stuff. I'm hearing it a little bit differently now. And so I even gives context for that question. So let me kind of keep working with you here. Okay. I think the most robust wall is not a belief system. It's a person. And so in, and, and by the way, that's my faith, right? Jesus isn't a belief system. Jesus is a person, right? Okay. So who I am is let's say that I'm a divorced dad. 
who I am to my kids, the proverbial gospel that I live to them is going to be way more telling than the words that come out of my mouth about who God is or who Jesus is. Okay. So when in doubt, be oneself and narrate the fullness of such. So, you know, I I used to say before as a dad, you know, why, you know, kids want to read bedtime stories at night before bed. And, you know, we choose all these great books. Why don't parents tell stories of their own life to kids at bedtime. And so that parent that may be in very different theological places, say, with their divorced partner, can still give a very solid wall to push off of by being the fullness of the person that they are. Mm. So you you basically make it so that the kid knows that you're there. And and who is and that? Who, and and right? you explain yourself to them and, and show yourself to and them. And maybe basically. even better said, I narrate myself okay. to them. Because narrative is how kids absorb information. How all of our Adults brains too. grow yeah. and heal. Yeah, advertising is yep. narrative, basically. Yep. Right. Okay. Yeah, that's good. You know, I, I did some research on, for instance, divorce specifically when I was in my doctoral program. And back to cogency of narrative, Right. Those co-parents getting into their own personal therapy so that they can be tending to their suffering, their heartache, and not implicitly bleeding that into the kids. Kids are going to often struggle in a post-divorce family context, but that struggle is going to be mitigated by the stories that surround them. And again, the the verbal speech that surrounds them. There's a guy named David Wallen who argues that which doesn't get verbalized gets embodied. And so a lot of times, again, when people are struggling and parents are struggling, they stop talking or they're afraid that they're going to give their kid misinformation or TMI. And so they stop treating their kid as a human. And you've already heard me say in that vacuum, then that kid has to draw conclusions of their own. And pretty soon the conclusions they draw are self-referential. And so keep talking and keeping an adult relationships where you can stay close to your own pain so that your own pain can be transformed and not transmuted. That would be Richard Rohr, right? And so therefore, as you're in the process of recovery, you can invite your kid along in that journey too. Fantastic. Yes, I did just pick one of the more psychedelic sounding uh, music clips for this transition. Uh, so a lot of you guys know Tom Ord, Thomas J. Ord. He's a theologian. He's been on this show twice already um, and more to come. He's a friend of the podcast. He offered to do a conversation with me for patrons only all about his kind of main theory, which is called essential kenosis um, in his book, God Can't. Also, his other book, The Uncontrolling Love of God, uh, which is the uh, slightly less popular, slightly more scholarly version. And we had a great chat. We, we talked through what exactly that view is. It's a type of open and relational theism um, that says kind of what God and God can and can't do. Um, and we talked about uh, some implications of his view uh, around the resurrection of Jesus, the eschaton or the afterlife, uh, miracles, and the inspiration of scripture. Here are a couple clips from that conversation to uh, wet your whistle. I think survivors, victims, people who have been hurt deeply, uh, 
they really warm up to that provocative title because they've been told that God allowed the things that happened to them or that God was punishing them, teaching them a lesson, whatever. Um, And so it may be shocking to everyone, but it's good news to a lot of folks who've been given other kinds of answers that they just found implausible. Other kind folks who've been given other kinds of answers that they found implausible is the definition of my listenership, Tom. (laughs) (laughs) For these people, they wonder why God wasn't there to prevent what happened to them. And uh, the answer they're usually given is God permitted it. God allowed it, either because God gives free will, and even though God could take away that free will, God decides not to sometimes, or it's a part of some greater good, or God's just trying to allow this thing, or God is allowing these things to try to help us build our character. These kinds of answers are the ones that I think most people have heard that they've that they've thought might have some validity. And my book is attacking those in a particular kind of way. So as you were saying that, I thought there's actually two different ways someone might have the same um, complaint or, or want to address the same question. There's an abstract and an embodied way. The mm. abstract way would be something like, I really want to believe in God, but the problem of evil uh, is a real issue for me. You know, let's say uh, a man or a woman is raped and they think, well, you know, God didn't want that rape, but that person has free will and God either honors that free will or, you know, something God wasn't going to intervene to stop it. And so then they might say, "Okay, God couldn't have prevented my rape, but that rape was 10 years ago and I'm still struggling with the trauma. I still have horrific dreams. I still get emotional attacks. Why can't God fix the problems that I'm dealing with now long after that particular event? And so one of the things I want to say and do say in in this book is that these kinds of events continue to have force and God cannot single-handedly prevent them in the first place and cannot single-handedly heal us. There has to be uh, some cooperation at some level. Some healing might take time. and, And in fact, some healing might not occur until the afterlife. So if that sounded good to you, or if you want to become a patron anyway, because you want to support the show, you want to be involved in the patron-only Facebook group, which is really alive and kicking these days. Uh, or if you want these two exclusive patron-only episodes every month, go to patreon.com slash dancoke or you have permission pod.com and click become a patron. Back to the episode. All right, next question. Quote, My husband and I landed in fairly different places during our faith journey. I'm Episcopalian, and he is pursuing converting to Judaism. We both very much respect each other and support where the other one is, but we now have some pretty big differences in our core beliefs. Biggest one obviously being that he no longer believes Jesus was the Son of God, which has a lot attached to it. We have some wonderful chats and love discussing these things, but I'm not 100% sure how to approach these things with our three, almost four kids. My five-year-old told me today that daddy doesn't believe Jesus died on the cross. We both want to be fully supportive and we want our kids to learn both faith traditions and eventually find their own way. With that in mind, any advice on how to approach their questions about 
his faith with respect and in the least confusing way possible Mm -hmm. when it's about an issue where our faith differs. Mm -hmm. I'm a stay at home mom. So I'm with them much more than he is, Mm -hmm. end quote. Mm -hmm. I'm going to riff a little bit on confusion first, okay? Cool. Um, Because I'm not a big fan of confusion because I don't actually know that it exists. And here's what I mean by that. Typically, people speak of confusion when they're thinking or feeling a whole bunch of things at once, and they don't know how to tie it together, so they call that confusion. Okay, so let's say in this context, we have a kid who's being exposed to any number of things, and they're thinking and feeling a whole bunch of things. And now they don't know what to do. And the parents trying to figure out what to do. Okay, now first things first there, I reference often a work called Finite and Infinite Games, written by a guy named James Carse. He was an NYU professor of I think it was theology and religion. Carse gives us a distinction between power and strength. Power, he proposed, maintains the status quo. And more often than not, power ends in harm and abuse. This is sort of a father knows best sort of mentality. Okay. Strength allows the horizon to move. None of us ever meets the horizon. Always the horizon is moving. Okay. And so in that frame of reference, then what I'll say is power, aka power struggles. No one ever wins a power struggle. And so the first thing to do if everyone finds oneself in a power struggle is to drop the rope, okay? Looking to maintain the status quo as opposed to allowing the horizon to move. We've already referenced that kids do well when they're in religious and spiritual communities. And again, that's not Christian as opposed to Jewish. That's no, when they're being raised in a village of people that are helping to tend to their personhood. So one of the first things would be make sure that power struggle isn't a part of the conversation. Okay. So growing in respect, so growing in knowledge. So it's not enough for, I would say, for the partner to say, hey, let your dad teach you about his religion or his, right, what's happening for him. You know, I'll teach you about mine. We want to make sure that both parents are knowledgeable about what each is considering. Each other, yeah. Right? That they're leaning into the differences there. Again, you hear we're choosing difference, not sovereignty. So more like mommy says, this is what I believe, and this is also what dad believes and how Mm -hmm. it's different, and Mm -hmm. this is why we still... Mm-hmm. This is what we agree on. And uh-huh. then dad does the same uh-huh. thing. Yeah, right? right. And to say, isn't it cool that we can love each other even as we're working out different things? Yeah. You know, when you hear me talk about what daddy believes and when you hear me talk about what I believe, what do you notice in yourself? I mean, it, so none of this even works at all if you think that the other person is part of a satanic religion or something. But <laughs> right, obviously sure. the person asking this doesn't think That's that right. or, or they That's would right. be divorced. That's something. right. We're assuming pro-social mentalities, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we're assuming faith bases that will move us towards goodness like love and compassion and this sort of thing. So again, what I would say is – Practice, you know, sort of co-mingling. Let the kid go to each of the religious communities' functions and events, right? Maybe this is back to the divorce question. You know, if, for instance, we're in, you know, a typical divorce, post-divorce pattern parenting plan would be, you know, Johnny spends first week with mom, second week with dad. Let Johnny go to the religious ceremonies that are involved with each week's happenings. But again, be an educated partner there and understand what Johnny's being exposed to. Yeah, and probably, I mean, depending on how conservative 
I mean, this woman is an Episcopalian, so it's yep. probably fine. But yep. if she were a Presbyterian, for uh-huh. instance, at a PCA church, mm-hmm. she might have to also do some defense for her kids mm-hmm. in deflecting some dumb shit that other people said to them at you the bet. church, you know? You bet. So that's part of it, too, is probably being aware of what is being said to them and counteracting that with your own better narrative. Right. Right. And so, you know, you hear me hopefully saying in any number of ways, we're growing in our knowledge of things and we're narrating. Right. Because people say dumb shit all the time. Right. I just dropped my kid off at kindergarten jumpstart this morning. I mean, he, the kid, this is his second day. And a kid comes up and says, what are those things on your nose? Which were freckles. Right. And in that moment, I want to jump. I want to go kick that kid. Like, hey, don't mess with my kid. Like, so stuff comes at our kids. It's going to happen. Non-stop. Yeah. And so it, we can act like that isn't so, or we can lean in. I'm so tempted to go into process theology with you. Because I keep getting reminded of it. We can't do it. But I just want to say this for those listening who are interested in this stuff. With real strength, the horizon is always mm-hmm. moving. Mm-hmm. Super process. Mm-hmm. And the new opportunities in every moment as we widen our relationships mm-hmm. is very process and very really kind of the, the way I'm increasingly thinking of God. If you want to say something about that, you can. And then we have to move on. Because I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll just go I'll, forever. I'll just nod right now. And, okay. and, and not enjoyingly. Okay. Yeah. All right. Here's a question that I actually wrote because I've just, it's been asked me so many times. What are best practices for preserving relationships with very conservative loved ones? Yeah. Do those change between generations? Like the the practices change, like between parents or even grandparents, do they change with the level of relatedness? For instance, should I treat a brother differently than a brother-in-law? Obviously spouse is going to be different. Let's just leave aside the the case of spouse because we've kind of been doing a lot of work okay. there. So let's say beyond your spouse, yep. loved ones, family relations, et cetera. Yeah. So, so f- f- first thing would be, remember our job is to love people and not truth people. Okay. So first things first there. Uh, and, you know, to think of St. Francis of Assisi, this idea of preach the gospel and when necessary use words, right? It's so easy to get embroiled. Things get so mushy, right? So in 21st century land, you know, politics and religion get really mushy, right? Um, as do many other things. And so it's not uncommon, for instance, for a political conversation to have very significant religious overtones and one f- for one to end up in a pretty significant power struggle where one is working out one's own spiritual journey in the midst of, say, conversation of, you know, is it going to be Biden? Is it going to be Elizabeth Warren? Or immigration, Uh, ICE and the camps and all that. Yeah. And so be clear, first of all, be clear about what's coming up for you in the conversation. Because again, you could be thinking that you're just trying to strike up a conversation with your parent about, or whichever family member, about XYZ, when really your own spiritual journey is, you know, maybe you've started to pull these things apart, but when your parent says a certain things that put, puts them in a certain camp, maybe that activates old wounds in you because it's that sort of thing that's gotten mushy in various areas that left you feeling abandoned and neglected. So again, our first work is You know, if you think about Matthew 7, right, pay attention to the log in your own eye. And that's not just simply sort of a judgment hypocrisy thing. You know, if I think about if I got a log in my eye, I am having a hard time seeing something, right? So even before I get to pearls before swine, I got to pay attention to log in my own eye. So as I head into a relational moment with whomever, first question is what's going to get activated in me? 
Okay. That's really interesting. You're kind of giving a corrective to my own approach. So I answered a question sort of similar to this one at the end of an episode recently, and it was about like mental tricks for empathizing with people. Okay. And basically, I just kind of threw Jonathan Haidt at everybody, um, you know, and Daniel Kahneman, Rider in the Elephant, System 1, System 2. And like, it's kind of like, for me, a defense mechanism. Uh, it's a way to not waste time. It's uh, a way to not needlessly piss people off. Yeah. Oh, you know what? I think they're just saying something that their tribe says. So I'm actually going to leave it entirely alone. Uh-huh. And unless they have some real expertise, and then I'll ask follow-up questions because I might learn something too. None of that has anything to do with what's going on inside Mm -hmm. of my own mind and heart. Mm -hmm. I'm kind of like, I'm a rock, I'm an island, Mm -hmm. and I'm going to figure out if this person really Mm -hmm. wants to listen or not. Mm -hmm. And so that's already interesting that you say, well, first, look inside. Like, what are, (laughs) why are you getting X? Why are you getting angry? Why are you getting agitated? Why? You know, why are you getting sad? So that's, I love that. And right. I, and even that, 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 that you out. there that is either trying to provoke or evoke in another, I would say, don't, don't stop doing it. The next time you do it, just notice what happens in you when you do it. Are you actually wishing for a different sort of engagement? Right. Or does a hurt come up? And, and, you know, are you saying in a sense, I still haven't recovered from what happened between us 10 years ago. So for me, this is a pearls before swine moment. I'm going to give you this thing as a defense, because until we tend to 10 years ago, we're not going to tend to today. Sure. Right. I think I did mention pearls before swine in the answer to. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's more just like I, I, I need to integrate my own body uh-huh. and my bodily reactions, which uh-huh. would include my emotions and the chemicals in my brain. I need to integrate that more than just a, well, let me analyze. It's just and very even, me that I answered. And even if analytical. I can't integrate, I at least have to be aware. Because sure. if we follow through Matthew 7, we get to ask, seek, knock, right? And so we ask, seek, knock out of what's in our own eyes and where the other person is. Right. And so I think a lot of times what happens is, again, we're on spiritual journeys and it can be painful to return home. Right. I think in many ways we're not made for home. We're made to leave home. Right. And so returning home often brings up a lot of pain. And so often one of the best modes of engagement when interacting with family members is simply information gathering. So this is interesting. This is something I've been thinking about. What I'm as I even go into psychological postgraduate work, uh-huh. how much even is our research and our supposed psychological knowledge contingent upon the fact that all this work is being done in an individualistic society? <laughs> totally. So what you just said really rings true. It's hard to go home sometimes. A lot of things about where we come from are not where we've gotten to. Right. And yet I think about China and Japan mm-hmm. uh, and and some Latin American cultures mm-hmm. and like. They would say, no, like that's bullshit. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, the only thing that makes life worth living is to keep these connections to the family. Mm-hmm. You live in the same house yes. with yes. four generations. Yes. I, so I mean, it's a bit of a tangent here, but like, wh- what do you say to that worry? Well, it's an important tangent because, again, I would say a lot of the quote unquote mental illness that we have in our Western world today is a product of individualism or even our difficulty coming home and loving the people that are there. We have to push off of those folks. We go West, young man, right? We make a name for ourselves outside and then these folks become second fiddle, right? You know, you you talk about, you talk to past generation folks.
folks, and you'll hear them say, you know, it, it really was a village that raised them, right? As opposed to now, you know, if, if say a neighbor, you know, this isn't a conversation about spanking, but for the sake of argument, right? To say back in the day when people were spanking more, if a neighbor parent spanked a neighbor kid, that was considered good and right and fitting. I think I got spanked by someone other than my dad I mean? once or twice. And, yeah. and that would be a bonding of that village as opposed to today, CPS would get called. Right. Right. And so what happens is we end up isolated as families. Families cannot be one-stop shops for their constituents. So families fail their constituents in part because we haven't valued the collectivist nature of family. And so families are set up to fail in that way, set up to experience isolation. So yes, I would say, you know, it's interesting. We say that we value individuation here in the West, but we actually are pretty lousy at it. There's a conformity theory. Conformity theory breaks down worldwide. You know, conformity look, theory looks at like, you know, what happens when a person is in a group of people? Will they sort of lean into the whole and do the thing that everybody else is doing or not? And it's supposedly like a, like a trait. Yeah. yeah. And so what's ironic is there is a shit ton of conformity in the Western individualistic frame. So though we supposedly say that we value individualism, we don't. Right? We value conformity and reactance. And what reactance is, is a social psychological term that says, I push off of something and it makes it appear like I'm standing on, on my own, Interesting. but I'm really not. And so many people <laughs> engage with family yeah. out of reactance, not out of differentiation. And there's a sense of, you know what? Love wins. Right. And love is blind and love is complicated. And so one can do a hell of a lot of work to differentiate and that won't ever take the love from their family of origin, from their tribe. Right. But I think a lot of times, especially people that go through Western therapy, don't feel the freedom to do that. Somehow they think now they have to leave those little people behind because those are the people that hurt me and blah, blah, blah. As opposed to, no, you get to come back and love your mom. You get to come back and love your dad just as they are. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, that idea of it's not that I've become an individual, it's that I have pushed off from the old thing mm. to a new to another thing. And that just makes me think of people who sometimes in the like ex-evangelical movement or whatever where it's like, well, I'm going to leave this fundamentalism and I'm going to yeah, join totally. this other totally. psychologically identical fundamentalism yeah. with opposite claims. Feeling free is so different than being free. That's good. Put that on a t-shirt. But so a thing we haven't really gotten to within that is like, are there varying yeah, great. practices okay, sorry. between sorry, I was riffing how close I, yeah, one yeah. is, you know, yeah. or how old they are? Yeah. Well, you know, and so then, then we got to say, what do you need from these people? That would be a really important question to ask. You're going into a meal with your brother-in-law. You're going into a meal with your parents-in-law. You're going into a meal with your parents, whoever it is. What do I need from these people? A lot of times our needs lead without us knowing that. And so a lot of times we need to get clearer with ourselves. What if I didn't actually need anything from this person? Yeah, if, if what you need is affirmation, you're going to end up telling the story about your right. work promotion or you're, you know, right. you're going to just go Or there. I need, somehow need for you to endorse this spiritual movement that I've made. And when you don't, then I got to shut the door and I'm going to go out and smoke a cigarette or whatever I'm going to do, right? Because I'm so pissy, right? So we got to get clear about what, why are we there and what do we need? And a lot That's of good. us are emotionally irresponsible. We don't actually take responsibility for our needs. We still 
wait for these people to come through for us. And so my sense would be part of your question is, you know, how much history do we have with these people and how is our need structure still embroiled with them? Oh, that's great. Next question. With either romantic or parental relationships, what are some things people think are good ideas that are actually, that you don't actually recommend? Love it. it. What are some things that though they seem like bad ideas are surprisingly positive or helpful? Great. Uh, I got three things for you. The first, Ephesians 4, 26. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Every time there's a, I don't want to anticipate this. Anytime someone's doing one of those wedding videos where they go around to the guests and, and I know that three or four people are going to yeah. don't go to bed angry. Yeah, 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 yeah. I make it yeah. a point to always get on the video and go, go Yo, to bed angry. Uh, totally. Sleep. Totally. You're going to yes. be way clearer in the morning. Yes. I don't care what any of the old people just told you. Yes. Okay. So first of all, my wife and I got together a little bit later. Uh, we were both kind of late twenties, early thirties. Our relationship was awful in the beginning, um, in part because we had learned to be different people. Uh, we were stubborn. We were fearful. Yeah. We had a lot of fear. We tried to work stuff out at night. It ended awfully. It's what you just said. So to not take that passage literally, but rather to say, if we imagine a season of don't let you, the sun go down on your anger, fine, right? When you get bugged by your partner, it's going to take you 20 minutes, your brain, 20 minutes to recover from that. And that's 20 minutes if you don't think the thought that irritates you. If you think the thought, I, I still can't believe that she did that. Guess what? Now it's another 20 minutes. You just mean like whatever adrenaline or something pumps through your system, mm-hmm. it will take 20 minutes for that to dissipate mm-hmm. chemically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it even includes don't be in the same room with that person because if you're breathing in their chromosomes, you're still going to experience them as threat. And so one of the first things that my- Hold wo- on. Breathing in their chromosomes? Yeah. So, so in other words, if you're literally oh. exchanging air, you're still, you still have access to their hormones. Re- is say, this oh, real? This is a thing. Okay. And so literally to create sense space. You don't want to hear their voice. You don't want to smell them. You don't want to yeah, taste them, touch them, that all makes this sense. stuff. I, I suppose so. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. okay. So, so there's a, there's like a sort of a subconscious smell and taste and stuff of a person. There's a physical thing yeah. happening yeah. here, okay? Where we've got to unplug. Again, back to Gottman. The masters and disasters, The different one of the differences between the masters and disasters of relationship is that they know when to call timeout. They know when to sort of evoke something called a participant observer where one person says, hold on. We're having the same argument we've had 10 times before. Is the 11th time really going to make any difference? Let's, here's your thing. Let's get some shut eye and then try again tomorrow. To be able to say to one's partner, can we try again? Is one of the most important skills I've found in my clinical work. But again, that has to often come after the air has been cleared a little bit. So that'd be number one. Okay? That's a good one. Yeah. Okay. I sign on to that one in with my almost 10 years of marriage. I say 100%. <laughs> and I was just thinking of something in the last couple of weeks where it was like, okay, we're really not seeing eye to eye on this. Mm-hmm. I feel myself really activated right now. Mm-hmm. I'm angry. Mm-hmm. Let's just talk about this in a couple hours. Yep. Like go yep. watch an episode yep. of your show. I'm going to go do this thing. Great. I do love you, but. Great. Whatever. And here would be another little sort of mini rule. And actually, it's not mini. A rule to build in there. The person that asks for space, the person that's overheated, overstimulated, flooded, triggered, whatever we call it, it's that that person's job to return. 
Oh, I like that. Okay. So in other words, I'm all jacked up inside. I know I can't, I don't have any bandwidth to hear a flipping thing that my wife is saying. It's not good enough for me to say, I need a timeout. I can say, I need a timeout. I'll check back in with you tomorrow morning once I get a chance to breathe a bit. Cool. Okay. Number two. Number two. We all give the love that we would want to receive. And the dilemma is it doesn't work. Okay. So I love my wife in the ways that I, this is sort of yeah, the, you know, golden rule going gone wrong, right? Yeah. Um, I would, I, the, the, a way that this plays out between my, my wife and I, I'm a person of many words. You can probably even tell that based on this exactly. interview. Exactly. I tell my wife how much I love her and she's like, just do the f- dishes. Right. Right. And so uh, it's natural for me to want what I would naturally give because that's the love that I know how to receive. Yeah. Right. This is where the five love languages as as mm-hmm. imperfect as it is is actually quite helpful it's actually really helpful yeah. and what i'm going to say is the really seemingly pedantic thing of asking your partner what would be helpful from you is an essential move in relationship so when you want to love on your spouse on your partner ask them how you can do that as opposed to assuming that you're supposed to know how this is not a therapy session for my wife and I, but I can't help <laughs> but. but bring this one up. The The problem we run into is I'll say, I would, can you please make a list of the stuff you'd like me to do? Or yeah. can you, and she's like, well, sure. But the main thing is I don't want to have to be asked. Oh, that's so we have an end around that's problem. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, and I'm glad you said that because, again, in the throes of relationship, always there's nuance and always certain things work in certain relationships and certain things don't. A thing that I... I mean, it still does. We That's not like that doesn't end the conversation. She still will give me things. Yeah, yeah. And then if I do them, she's grateful. Okay. You know, so it's not... Yeah, sure. But even for you to jot down the things that she said, and even to say, you know, hey, I'm going to try number mm. three. Is number three best or should... You know, is there another? Yeah. Right? I mean, you can start to be become a bit savvy that's that true. way, right? Yeah. Now, here's the thing that I hear people say over and over and over again. Um, they don't want to have to coach their partner on how to love them, because somehow that will then be disingenuous oh, yeah. or less than or it's staged it's not spontaneous it's right? not like the movies and therefore yeah. it's not true right i can't tell you dan how many times i've coached my five-year-old son to apologize to me and it's unhooked something in me so yes we got to get over ourselves a little bit and say it's not going to be natural for the people around us to love us in the way that we want or need to be loved and so it's our emotional and relational stewardship work to actually promulgate that okay and so to teach people what it means to love us so don't be afraid to ask and don't be afraid to be taught a lot of times I'll say, call the pitch before you throw it. Hey, I'd like, I have an hour tonight and I'd really like to do something to feel close to you. Is there something that would be helpful? Or a lot of times, you know, I still have a Mr. Fix it in me, even though I'm trained in all this stuff. Right. So my, my wife will tell me something that's bothering her. And many times I'll say to her, so this, is this one of those times where it'd be helpful for me to just listen and give you a hug at the end and tell you that everything's going to be okay? Or do you need something different? And she'll say, no, the first one. It's usually that. Right? Yeah. As right. I, I've, anyway, in my, in my marriage. Okay. And then number three. Number three. Systems seek homeostasis. 
Okay. And so here's what I mean by that. Every relationship is a system. Every person is a system. Every, every relationship is a system. And so when people introduce something new to a system, usually the system doesn't like it. We're back to stability and novelty. Hello. The continuum. Right. right? Okay. okay. And so for, you know, I'm this listening. Is, this is where you get, for instance, you know, the drunk that gets sober, but then goes back into the same system. The system wants dad passed out on the couch because they know what to do when dad's passed on the couch. They don't know what to do when he's sober and sitting there and awkward. So in other words, you're trying to have a new conversation with your partner about faith or any of the things we talked about. Golden rule, don't assume it's going to go well. In fact, assume it's going to feel pretty shitty. Assume it's going to flop. I think the hardest moves are not the first move. They're the second, third, fourth, fifth move. The importance of returning over and over and over again. So a lot of times what people will do is they'll spend a lot of time sort of strategically on, okay, I want to have this conversation with my wife. I want to have this conversation with my father. And they'll spend all their time on the entry point. They do the entry point and it doesn't go well and the conversation stops. So assume as you're working to transition, as you're working to enact change in your life, it's not going to go well in the system around you. And that's not bad news. That just kind of is. And so resilience would say you stay for the second, third, fourth time. You stay in it as opposed to you pull out when it didn't seem to go well. Next question. Got it. Well, this one we've sort of answered, so we can move past it pretty quickly, but are there productive and successful relationships with two people actively pursuing separate faith-based traditions? For sure. For sure there are. Yep. The next question uh, is related. Do the children of the above couples thrive? And if so, what are the key traits in the couples that raise healthy children in a dual faith environment? Yeah. I, you know, again, I, I don't know what the empirical literature would tell us here. Okay. But I can say anecdotally, sure, those kids can thrive just like kids in divorced families can thrive. Difference doesn't have to mean destruction, right? And so all of the things that we've talked about around knowledge and conversation and narration and respect and love and compassion and the how and not the what, all that stuff factors into, will those kids not just survive, but thrive? I mean, I am a little bit familiar with some of the research on divorced and together parents. Yep. This is recently from Mary Clements, the provost of Fuller Seminary at this conference I was at. She said, all things being equal, the best is obviously the, the two parents are still together. The next best is actually divorced where the parents are friendly with each other mm. and have a good co-parenting mm -hmm. strategy. Then below that, the parents are together, but they're at each other's throats. Yes. And then below that, they're divorced and they are not on the same page and they're not antagonistic to each other. Totally. So they're, even then you go, okay, there's a little bit of nuance here. Yeah. If she says, she tells people at church all the time, you might be staying together for the kids yes. or, or for your faith commitments or something because you don't believe in divorce. She's like, but look, either work on your marriage mm -hmm. or get divorced mm -hmm. because it's, you're actually not doing yourself mm -hmm. or your children any favors well, right. by just knuckling it out. Why because the, it? the first level and the second level both have friendship baked into them. Right. And so Gottman's idea, he gives and consistency us, too, right? Which yeah. is part of friendship, right? So uh, Gottman gives us a sound relationship house model where he says the foundation of solid relationships of a sound relational house is friendship. And so always we return to as, 
as co-parents, how is our friendship doing? Even if we're no longer lovers, how is our friendship doing, right? My understanding is that two-thirds of divorce end adversarially. And so that says the parents that choose to stick together, aka to really work to maintain friendship and teamwork in the midst of their parting of ways, those people are doing a lot, a lot, a lot of work. Next question. Have you ever seen a couple or family improve their relationship because of a faith differential? I think this could either mean different faiths or just different uh, differences within the same faith. Do people ever take it as an opportunity to move from assumed shared values to chosen core values everyone can agree on. I mean, mm-hmm. it sounds like, yes, yes. This I mean, is it's almost like that. that I, I won't call that essential, but kind of ish, right? Where one partner is moving ahead in something and inviting the team of the relationship to come along. Yeah. And I mean, that just sounds like a lot of the stuff we were talking about earlier of like crisis being yes. the opportunity for growth. Exactly. Stuff. Exactly. Quote, I'm interested in hearing advice on how to handle social loneliness as a couple. Almost all our social interactions were based on shared evangelical values, I guess, in the past. Mm -hmm. Going out with other couples used to be a highlight of our relationship. Now that is pretty much gone. It's been several years into this deconstruction thing, and it seems that as a couple, we have a lot less to talk about due to the isolation of it all. It Mm -hmm. sounds to me like the couple, they're both going through the deconstruction, and it's with other couples and whatnot. Yeah, yeah. That's really painful, first off. And I have very clear images of clients I'm working with right now who this is, this is their life. So, so first off, it seems just really important to honor how painful that isolation and loneliness is. Second of all, also to say that loneliness really is an epidemic in our society. It gets back to what you and I were talking about a little while ago, individualism, collectivism, and maybe even especially kind of at the heart of my work, middle-aged men especially are reaching all-time highs in loneliness in part because they stop touching each other. They literally stop experiencing touch. And so whether it's literal or metaphorical, as we don't experience the touch that we need, our brains fall out. And it's really common to hear a person say, it's far worse to feel isolated in a group of people than it is on one's own, right? And so when one is willing to question one's spirituality, a lot of times what that means is, again, you're not just losing your faith base. You're not just losing the thing, you know, all of your responsibility as to why, but many times you're losing your people base too. You're losing your tribe. And so one of the most important things I think is just simply to acknowledge how painful that is. Maybe what I'll say in that, M. Scott Peck, you know, the people of the lie guy, right? Also wrote a book called A Different Drum, where he looked at the spiritual life of people and of communities. And he talked about how many times communities will reside in a stage that he calls pseudo community, which is it's that homogeneity thing, right? As long as you believe the things that we want for you to believe, and as long as there aren't conflicts around the essentials, then we have a place for you. One of the most important things to be aware of for us as people is our need to belong is primary. Yeah. Right? People will chase after conspiracy theories, literally, for a place to belong. 
right? The flat world people are a good example of this, right? Yeah, I was just actually finished that documentary yesterday. Right? Yeah. yeah. And so people do crazy things to belong because our need to belong is so essential. And so many times people will think about that sort of dependence again as weakness. I should be able to stand on my own two feet. Jesus should be my all in all sort of thing. And so again, if we allow that need to be primary, we allow the experiences of isolation to be as painful as the, as they are. You know, Brene Brown, you know, the she's in the literature. Uh, the new celebrity, Brene yeah, Brown. Right, yeah, right, right. Um, she talks about this. Oh, gosh, I forget what she calls it. Maybe it's an inch squat. And, and what she's referencing there is a one by one inch piece of paper where you can write the names of the people that you would trust your holy of holies to. That The idea is we don't go out and tell everybody all of our business, right? But we're really selective around the people that we let into those deepest parts of us. And so it's really painful either to not have that person in one's life or to lose that person in one's life. And so again, to be able to lament that and to not see that as somehow a deficit or a problem or a symptom of, you know, something that's wrong, but rather as a moment of grief and loss that's worth grieving over. A guy named Martin Prechtel wrote a book called The Smell of Rain on Dust, and he argued that grief is praise for that which is lost. We've lost a lot by way of social connection and belonging as the church has sort of fallen apart of late. And I think a lot of us are struggling to figure out what to do with that deep sense of disconnect that's in us all. Here's one that I think you're going to want to kind of nuance your own way, but I'll read it as it was written. Okay. Do you ever have to fight the urge to try and persuade your clients into believing what you believe totally. on any given issue? And how do you deal with those who are moving to theological positions and or to other faiths that you don't share or believe in? Yeah, I'll, I'll bring up some kind of ethical dilemmas with the counseling students that I teach I'll do that by way of when I teach something called self-actualization, which was kind of an important thing for 20th century humanists where they, you know, believe we could kind of reach a pinnacle of, you know, being oneself. It's easy to do that as a therapist when my client is doing that in ways that I would sanction. What's been harder for me, for instance, is yeah. like... What to do when my client says for them, self-actualization is moving towards an open relationship. Right. Yeah. And maybe they don't want to tell their partner and maybe they're just fine with that. Yeah. What right? do you do then? What, what, right? what to do? And so really I've been in the work for 20 years and I would say, I don't know when I would draw a line in the sand, but let's say at least the first half of my career, probably more, I was probably subtly by way of social influence, trying to convince, persuade folks to think and feel how I felt because that would help me feel better. Many times yeah. helping professionals do things, you know, with good intention, but implicitly helping themselves and not helping the person who's actually coming in need. And so this is where, if you remember integration, the linkage of differentiated parts, this is where I've got to be really clear for myself about what who I am and what I believe so that when that client comes in, we can actually link as they differentiate. And that isn't yeah. a threat to me. That actually increases the strength of the space between us. So g get practical on, that's a great example. So let's say you do have a client like that who's like, they telegraph or say explicitly that like their self-actualization they believe is to be completely unencumbered sexually. Yep. And uh, in fact, because of power dynamics, 
I don't feel like I need to share this with my partner. Yeah. So they're going to basically open up the relationship and cheat on them. And they yep. think that that's self-actualization. Yep. So that's pretty far from the stuff that you're committed yep. to. Yeah. How like flesh that out, like what goes on then? Yeah. Well, so the way that I was taught, you know, back in the day, how to deal with that, I was told I'm supposed to be value neutral and I'm supposed to keep my own beliefs out of the room and blah, 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 blah. There's no flipping way to do that. If any of my students listen to this, they'll, they'll know this phrase. The work has to be enough about us that it stops being about us. And that's the helpers. And what that means is I need to allow myself to be in the room sufficiently and clearly enough. So when that client is talking to me, I've got to say to them, okay, I got to let you know from a belief standpoint, here's yeah. where I am. Okay. So that if you start to hear that squeaking out of what I'm saying, and it seems like I'm trying to coerce you into something that I might find to be, we'll call it whatever appropriate, what have you, right? As opposed to something that you're seeing to be good for you, let's have a conversation about that. Okay. So yeah, I, you could see how that could turn into good therapy too, because then they're examining why they believe that and or who told them that and... Have they seen, like, it makes me think of the Tobias Funke open relationship line in, in Arrested Development, where he's a therapist and he's like, they always convince themselves that it'll work, but it never does. But it just might work for us. <laughs> <laughs> but like, you get them to actually think about why, and then that will hopefully lead to something yep, that's helpful yep. for them. And, yeah. and again, hopefully you hear me as the helper there following that same Matthew 7 rubric that I gave you earlier, which is what's the log in my eye? What am I seeing and not seeing before I even pay attention to where are they? Yeah, interesting. There's like an underlying question, which is how do people actually change their minds on stuff like that? Mm -hmm. And it's probably not by beating them over the head. Mm -hmm. or refusing to see them or, yeah, you know, so, whatever. So again, back in the day, you know, again, I don't know, first 10 years plus, I was interested in being right. Now I'm interested in being kind. And to me, kindness is not niceness. Kindness is not turning my face away. So we stay in the hard conversations. It's natural for the helper when there's difference, when a client is talking about something and I'm really uncomfortable what they're talking about, it's kind of natural for me to try to just ever so slightly pull them off the heart center of that conversation to get back to something that's more comfortable with me. Maybe right, yeah. I need to be doing my own spiritual work such right. that I can end enter into the throes of mystery with them and say, wow, this is really uncomfortable. This is really awkward. I can feel the parts of me that, yeah. right, that feel fear as we talk about that, right? That's me letting wow. the work be enough about me that it doesn't have to be about me. I recognize that feeling even just, you know, not in the clinical setting, but just when people bring up, you know, some of the transgender questions and polyamory, especially polyamory yeah. Yeah. is one where I'm like, oh, okay, so what? Why am I defensive about this? Yeah. I mean, I know I have my beliefs and I could explain them to you, but like, yeah. I think I could do more work uh, around that personally so that I can get out of the way, you know, if there needs to be. A well, and it comes back to what you and I were talking about earlier of being a clear wall to, for people to push off of. If right. I can say to someone, hey, listen, here's where I stand. You're welcome to push against what I say as much as you like, and I'm not going to leave you. That's good stuff. Yeah. Um, two more questions for you. Great. We're, there's the light at the end of the tunnel. Has counseling people through faith transitions of their own ever prompted a faith transition in you? Well, hopefully based on my last response, this response will make sense. If it doesn't, I'm not 
in the work, either for the right reasons or I'm not doing very good work. If I'm not, as a helper, perpetually called into some version of crisis, even if it's many, then again, I'm not doing the work. Because to be a helper means to be in the pain and suffering and darkness and shit of the world, right? Some of the hardest moments as a helper are moments where it's just utterly dark and Mm -hmm. I can't keep any thread of hope or redemption or goodness or light alive. Can you actually give us an, an example without naming anybody? Oh, sure. I mean, people, abuse of kids, right? To hear the ways that adults have ravished children and not just unintentionally, but intentionally tormented children. It, to say it churns my, everything in me wants to run from those moments, but everything in me knows that I have to stay right? There's something even for me about being a dad who's raising three boys to say, I'm not going to turn my face away from hearing about these uh, horrific, horrific things because I got to raise my boys in a world where we acknowledge that's the shit that happens. Yeah. Supposedly this is a thing. Um, and I hope this kind of gets at the question that's being asked here. In 2016, I, I finished my dissertation. I turned in my final copy uh, that June and that night my brains fell out. Uh, the way that I typically speak of this is it's like I, at one point I counted up, I was in school for 27 years. And so I, I sort of imagined myself to be like a train, you know, a train engine with all these cars behind me, because always the work of being in a learning setting is not the learning itself. It's, you know, you're, you're there to sort of learn and then move on. Right. And so education is always, always about what's to follow. And so here it is. I, I turn in this dissertation, I become doctor and all of the things that that had been in my train cars. It's like the engine stopped and all of a sudden the cars crashed together. And so I had the opportunity, let's say, to face things that I hadn't faced for much of my life. So the work that I'm doing, e- even to become educated, the work that I'm doing sets me up always to receive in new ways. And so it's the clinicians, it's the helpers, it's the counselors who become expert and stop receiving. Those are the folks that actually become pretty scary, right? It's hopefully I can put myself in this camp. Those of us that are willing to be undone by the work. I'll tell you a place where this plays out, Dan, is when I'm doing couples work and I hear, I hear two couples basically having a version of the same argument that I've had with my wife, but I can actually hear both sides. And then I can call my wife and say, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. I see. I hear. I feel. Right. When I, as a helper, pour myself into the work, it is amazing the goodness and the the humility that I can receive as a result. So this last question, I mean, you might have to figure out how to answer it because it sounds like your your faith is always changing. But I, I guess what they mean is a more substantial change. Have you ever had to counsel people through faith changes amidst a change of your own? So let's call it not a gradual change, but maybe a bigger, a more of a sea change. 
And if so, did that affect the quality of the help you were able yeah. to provide? And I think, good, thanks for that. Because I think that's actually why I referenced that 2016 story. Because for instance, I think that I had been lulled before then, lulled into a framework where I was kind of going about a lot of my business on my own. And so as my brains were falling out, I had to recruit trusted others in ways that I hadn't in years, I was back in personal therapy, couples therapy. I was, I was seeking, you know, consultation from multiple professional others. I was in community in ways I hadn't been before because I literally knew I needed community to survive. Second Corinthians 10, five, right? Take every thought captive. To, to me, how we take thoughts captive is we render them to community. And so it's the thoughts that we don't render to community. I hear that verse from my childhood and I go, just, you know, buckle down, clench your teeth, take it captive, soldier for Christ. Absolutely. Bump your eyes, all that stuff, right? Yes. As opposed to taking a thought captive to me is tell somebody. You're struggling. Awesome. Tell somebody. It's the thoughts that I can't, can't render to community that take me captive. So yes, I would say even as of, what is this, 2019, three years ago, I was in, I was questioning all over the place who God was, what's it all about, what to do with my pain, where's my life going? And I had a full caseload. Okay. So that's it for the main questions. You have mentioned approximately 75 thinkers and books <laughs> and methods and theories. I, I want to just, so my last question for you is let's narrow this down to like, I don't know, a handful Love it. of either books or websites or something, Wikipedia pages, whatever. <laughs> I'm going to put everything yeah. you're about to say is going to go in the show notes. Love it. So what are those resources? And Great. then I'll track them down. Go-tos for me, I'd say, are Rollheiser's The Holy Longing, Ronald Rollheiser's The Holy Longing, um, John Gottman's The Seven Principles of Making Marriage Work, um, James Carse's Finite and Infinite Games, I would say Roar's Falling Upward, that was four, and Enz's Sin of Certainty. How about that? Okay. Yep. Peter Enz's Sin of Certainty. Yep. Okay. So there'll be links to those. You can go look at the Amazon pages and read about them. Uh, Doug, thank you so much for your time today, man. You're welcome. Really appreciate it. It's a pleasure. I'll also put a link to your website in case, especially if people are in the Seattle area and looking, looking for somebody. Great. Um, and yeah, just man. a note there, it's a, it's a Doug Shirley research.com. I don't actually have a website for my practice and that's a bit intentional. Um, but on my website, at least you'll see some of my sort of traipsings about by way of research. Great. Thanks, man. Big thank you to Josh Gilbert for editing this conversation with Doug. That was not a small feat. He is available for other podcast editing work, and his email is in the show notes. I've got links to Holy Longing, Seven Principles for Making Marriage Work, Finite and Infinite Games, The Sin of Certainty, and Doug's own website. Um, So check the show notes for those. And join the Patreon to get exclusive episodes like the one with Tom you heard earlier. Facebook group access. Just be in regular touch. Just be a part of it all, guys. It's growing. It's fun. It's helpful and inspiring. Uh, And uh, yeah, let me know what's up. You have permission. Podcast at gmail.com. And we'll see you next week.